All right. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of React Roundup. I am TJ Van Toll, and I will be your host for today. And joining us, our, our special guest today is Dragos Bulijan. You'll have to help me with your name, but Dragos, why don't you start us by telling us who you are, why you're famous, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me on the show, TJ. And yeah, it's you had it close, Bulijan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a software developer, been working in the industry since around 2011. In 2016, I started doing more freelance stuff, consulting, doing remote work. And then I drifted towards more founder land. I wanted to build something of my own. And uh, that's when I actually started learning a lot about React because I, I needed to, you know, build the whole system myself couldn't afford to, to pay somebody else. And yeah, I think this is what I'm here to share with you guys. My experience with React, building a large code base by myself, managing it, going through, you know, emotional <laughs> distress doing it. And <laughs> hopefully you can learn something from my mistakes. <laughs> hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, the, the title you sent over of like how to manage a sort of 80,000 line code base as a solo developer. So that's like a, it's an A plus title, right? You could get a, it's a good article title as someone that does this like professionally. <laughs> that's a good line. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you have this large code base, right? So I guess, first of all, maybe you could explain what are all those lines of code doing? Like, what what did you build? And maybe we could start there because then I'm obviously curious about some of the tech behind it and how you approach it. Yeah, sure. So a bit of background. In like 2018, I was doing consultancy for a couple of companies in Germany, giving them software architecture advice. And I noticed where it was like their documentation was super thin. And actually, the the, the companies that did have good documentation were more likely to build good products and build a great company uh, than the ones that didn't care about their documentation. And I was like, well, it seems like a good correlation. Why, why aren't more companies building good documentation for themselves and for the customers? And I was like, okay, let's look at this. And at the time, Confluence was a big player in the space for documentation, especially for documentation in the realm of software development teams and nobody was actually happy with it and i thought well this is an obstacle for teams to document stuff even if it's maybe it's not first nature to document stuff maybe it's also because the tooling is not there yet so i started building this tool called archv which is a documentation tool for modern teams uh we try to you know think about uh, the software development team, what it encompasses from software developers to QA engineers to uh, product managers to sometimes even, uh, you know, executives coming in and trying to see what the team is doing, not from the, you know, to check what the team is doing, but to understand better so, so they can get together. So this is what we do. We have a, a, a bit of focus on, you know, the development the developer aspect of things because that's where the documentation is is the thinnest and you know this is the background and 
what we've built is some sort of wiki on steroids, if you <laughs> if you like to think about it that way. So the the last generation of wikis was like you know the media wiki and TQ wiki and the ones that you added that weird language that nobody knows anymore, and you hit save and then you hit refresh and you see this horrible creature in front of you. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty accurate. I mean, I've, I've worked for a handful of large companies and I feel like everyone has had some sort of like weird instance of wiki software that was clunky. And I mean, it, it kind of got the job done, but nobody ever liked using it, right? And I think for developers, as you said, like there's never enough documentation. So everybody always wants there to be more. And so the more you can do to make it an easy experience, experience that people actually want to do is great. So I'm actually curious, like, because I want to get into the tech angle of this too, but maybe you could just quickly say, like, what are some of the things that Archbee does to try to make documentation easier? What's your, like, uh, quick pitch of really nice features that you offer? Yeah, sure. So we we try, firstly, to make everything collaborative. So if if somebody needs to edit the same thing you're editing, it'll work out of the box. And we try to provide these cool widgets on top of the, the text and formatting that every wiki and every documentation system offers. And I think those widgets are what makes us special in the market because, you know, there's, there's actually very good solutions for generic documentation. And one of them is, is Notion, even though if they started as, you know, notes apps for, for individuals, they're making a good transition towards wikis and documents for teams as well. And what makes us special and what makes us different is that we focus on a particular set of widgets that are very useful for the software development teams. We offer diagramming. For example, you can just drag and drop and search in a lot of open source libraries, APIs, and companies that offer SDKs and stuff. You can just search and drag and drop them. We have uh, API documentation where, you, for example, if you have a Swagger or open API specification, you just point our widget to your endpoint and it generates that whole documentation thing where you can just click and call the endpoint and see what it gets back to you. Oh, wow. Uh, also, more advanced of like GraphQL, you know, GraphQL, you have that playground where you can actually call the APIs. We also have that integrated into the platform. Change logs. That's that's a very nice addition in the past couple of months. You can, you know, describe what change logs are and, and what they do in a very nice looking way. Markdown shortcuts. And yeah, that, that's pretty much it from the content. But we also offer a very nice organization method in the left. So you have the, the same layout as Notion. And there you can have the document trees. You can drag and drop them, rearrange them and do whatever you want with them. Well, very cool. Yeah, I'm just sort of perusing around. I especially like the bit about working with endpoints and figuring that stuff out. That looks actually pretty cool and pretty useful as well. So I guess my next question is, so there's obviously there's a lot there. And so I want to get into how this thing is built, right? So maybe you could start by just painting us a picture. I'm assuming you're using React, but maybe like what other technologies, what is driving all of this under the hood? Yeah, I'm very happy to talk about that and very excited because we've done something a bit different than what we started with. But right now, when I say we, it's me, investors, advisors, you know, 
the marketing guy that I have with it's actually me who have who has built this whole stuff. So I'm <laughs> uh, it's I think the backbone of all of it is TypeScript actually. So when I started doing this, I thought about how would I be able to handle this myself? I just wanted to build a profitable business, something I can sustain myself off of and be happy to write code for 20 years. This was my initial thinking about the dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much the dream. It's, it's not special anymore <laughs> if you think about it today. But yeah, so when I was thinking about these requirements, I was like, okay, we need a statically typed language with possibly strong types in it so that I don't have to keep all of this code in my head as it, as it grows for 15 or 20 years so that the compiler helps me find more of the bugs, maybe not all because no compiler can do that, but a good chunk of them and can lead your development. So I was like, okay, let's look what's out there. I found ReasonML, which worked very good on, on front end, but it didn't work as well on the back end. I found F Sharp, which worked very well on back end because it was on the .NET thing, but it, it didn't work so well on the front end. It did have some integrations with like, not integrations, but like bindings to React and, and it, it had their own front end framework. And I think it was called Fable or something, the compiler. But I was like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm also going to have to learn a lot of stuff about F Sharp or OCaml with ReasonML. And I'm like, let's find a more commercial <laughs> language that works on front end and back end at the same time. Yes, and I'm curious. Like so, then what is driving the the back end? Then is it Node based? Then yeah, it's yeah, it's Node because I wanted to keep the same language. I I came across TypeScript, which I found very very good, and I already decided on on the front end, which was React. I said, well, let's keep using TypeScript on the back end, and the only option was Node. I was already familiar with it, so I went with with the stack React Node TypeScript. And so on the back end, then, if it, are you using any additional frameworks on top of Node, or is it just sort of like raw nodes, just some Node server that you have hosted somewhere? No, it's actually pretty complicated machinery. We we use a, <laughs> we use a Express, which is a very low level framework on top of uh, the barebone Node.js. We use okay. SQLize for you know interacting with with the database and stuff. We use Redis for doing the real-time communication stuff. We use Elasticsearch for search. And all of this is it's still a monolith. It works great so far, but it's actually deployed as, as it would be in a, in a microservice architecture. It's deployed on, a, on a AWS CCS along with Elastic Beanstalk. And we use a lot of you know, AWS services like AWS RDS, AWS... Uh, Memcache, AWS Elasticsearch. I'm not sure how it's called for AWS, but it's Elasticsearch. We also use a bit, bit of Lambda for some uh, for some small stuff like rendering PDFs. So the, this is an impressive list of technologies. I'm actually like I'm trying to get some of these in the show notes and such, and just <laughs> keeping up with just typing them into Google has been something. So. I want to dive into some of this, but I'm actually I'm curious because you said you're you're basically are you the sole developer on this or like the the main person doing this? Is that right? Yeah, I'm the, I'm still the solo developer doing this. Okay, so my question is then, 
how did you get into, I'm curious, like how much time it took to build some of this up and such, because this, there's a crazy amount of, of stuff going on here. So I'm, I'm curious, like how much time you spent in this, like how you got to learning some of these taxes, it's just sort of like trial by fire, just, just try to make it work or how exactly did this, all this come about? Well, it, it sounds fancier than it is because <laughs> once you get those systems in place, you don't have to do much, but I was familiar with them before I started doing this because I was working since like 2011 in the industry. And I also worked with a lot of technologies and in, in my consultancy because I had something like two years, I worked with close to 40 companies. I had to, you know, research and dig deep into a lot of technology from all types of databases to 10 plus programming languages to, you know, a bunch of frameworks for front-end development. But yeah, I was I was familiar with everything uh, I used in there. Actually, TypeScript was the newest thing for me at the time, but I already had built stuff in React, already had built stuff in Node.js, already had used, you know, relational databases and and DynamoDB and Lambda. So I know it sounds crazy for for one guy, and it probably is, but this is a very long-term game when you think about it. If I started in in January 2019, it's already close to two years since I started doing this. Yeah, it's it's an impressive list, but I I like how you phrase it as just building upon what you already know, because that helps sort of break down. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm sure we have lots of listeners that have their own business idea in mind, right? They, they have something that yeah. they want to build, but it can seem crazy overwhelming to, because when you're just sitting there looking at a blank page, there's, it just looks like a whole lot to do, but I like how you're, you're sort of approaching it as well. I had some of this background. I had some new things I had to know, and it's just sort of take it a day at a time, build things yeah. up till you get to that point. So that's, I like that way of approaching it just because it makes it it makes it more approachable. It doesn't seem like you're just building some absolutely astronomical thing overnight. Well, yeah, it's it seems like a lot of things, but you, you have to think about it from another perspective, in my opinion. You have to be a bit naive to get into all of this because if you are, are not naive, I was certainly very naive of what it would take to build a system of, of this, you know, to do this, <laughs> that... To, and to get to a level that people would actually buy a subscription. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was very naive. I, I remember myself, well, I can build this like four or six months. But after like eight months, I still had a shitty product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so, curious, did you uh, did you start building this while doing some of your contract work? Or did you just full stop say, today I'm I'm building something new? I did start building it while I was still doing contract work, but it was like the last three months and I was mostly, you know, documenting what I want to do and how I want to do it. I had this, you know, I put out the product on Product Hunt, these diagram stuff, you can just drag and drop stuff in there. And I built upon that. That also was like three or four months of development. So it wasn't actually from scratch when when I said January 2019. It was like that was like three or four months of development development more behind. So yeah, uh, it's not to be discouraged <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so, I, if we dive back into the coding 
bit of this, I guess, like, considering this is such a large project, like, what sort of recommendations do you have? Like, we talked about TypeScript, but for people to sort of manage the complexity of building something this big, are there any other, like, tips and tricks, like, architectural things, like how you structure your code, where you put it, things like that, that you think others could benefit from? Yeah, definitely. So I think the the most underrated and actually very widespread advice is keeping things small and have their own role. For example, if you have a component, make it as small as possible. If you have a React component, if you have a router on the backend that receives uh, requests and spits responses as well, keep it very small. Keep it, you know, maybe at best five 500 lines of code. I'm not saying split it by the number of lines of code, maybe split it by functionality, but always try to, you know, do as little as possible into, into one thing. This is what I learned. And this is actually very common advice, but people don't, don't take it into consideration that much. When you get to write code, you just write it and then forget about this stuff. I don't know how it happens, but it definitely happened to me a lot of times. <laughs> I think it's one of those things too that like it's it's one of those software development advices that you can't really understand unless you went through the process yourself. Because like on paper, it's like, well, of course you want to keep code simple, right? Like no one's <laughs> gonna say, like, oh, I'll just go, I'll take the complex route today, right? That one sounds more fun. But if you go through the process enough to know like it. It's almost like don't be lazy about the code you write. Like, because sometimes you can just think, like, ah, this, like, I'll get this to work. And once it's working, then I'll just go ahead and uh, just ship it, right? It's fine. It's, it, it works. I click the button. The thing I want to happen happens and I can get on with my day. But like, I, I, I know from my experience, like, sometimes even if it seems like it's more work to go back and take the extra time to like simplify it, to maybe abstract things out, like over time, those sorts of things can pay off quite a bit. For sure, yeah. I mean, you don't have to take this to heart. You can also do what you said. If the button works, deploy it, and then maybe <laughs> you'll come back later and fix it. It's not a hard rule for like 500 lines of code. We also have a file that's 2,000 lines of code. It's fine, it's working. Customers are paying us. It's not a pain, you know, changing it. Sometimes you, I mean, I get frustrated a bit or like 2,000 lines of code. Where can I find this stuff? And, you know, there's there's tools in the editor, like you can see the outlines. So there's no hard rules, but to keep things uh, <laughs> neat, I would suggest just stick to, you know, small responsibility stuff. It's a function, a class, a router, you know, whatever. If it's doing something on its own, keep it as it's something with an input that spits an output, and that's it. And do you find like React helps with this? Like, um, did you try like before you built this? Did you use React because you had experience there, or did you tr like experiment with other frameworks to see what would be the best fit for what you were doing? Yeah, actually, in, in uh, 2013, I worked for a big bank in Europe, and we built this home bank app with a wrapper and it was built on uh, angular js one that was like one of the first big frameworks to build apps with yeah and i was very disappointed for like two or three years with angular because whatever we did we couldn't actually build a good code base on it they had i mean angular had this weird philosophy that you know you had dual data binding and 
data flowed from top to bottom and from bottom to top. And there was no good convention. It, it was actually a very big mess and I was very disappointed with it. And for a while, I thought, well, we cannot improve this. This is what it is. It's, it's hard to build this, but this is what it is. And then, you know, like React, when React came out, I was like a bit skeptical, like everybody else. Well, I don't want to put HTML in JavaScript. <laughs> you know, everybody said that. It looks like a, a monkey with a, an elephant's horn or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually very, very solid philosophy. You have top to bottom data flow. You have, so the components are more like functional components where you have an input and every time it has the same output with the same state. So it borrows a lot from like functional languages and it makes it a lot easier, I would say. And yeah, when I understood this, I was like, well, I definitely need to use React, React on something. And I was fortunate when uh, in one of my consultancy, they allowed me to, to write some code and, and learn React <laughs> for like two or three months being paid to do it. And then I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah, and, no. uh, yeah. It's funny. Um, so I work at a company called Progress and we make Kendo UI. So, and we have UI components for all different frameworks, right? We make them for Angular and for React. And I'm not supposed to have favorites per se, right? It's like, you're not supposed to have a favorite kid because we, we try to market to everybody. But deep down, like, I mean, the reason I'm here is I, I am more of a React fan just because for exactly what you said, I especially feel it at the component level because with React, if you want to like take one of our components and extend it just a little bit or tweak it just a little bit, with React, it's so easy to make those sort of like lightweight wrapper components sort of thing. Where in Angular, I feel like there's so much ceremony involved with getting things done. And to be sure, you can be totally productive in Angular. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, it's a totally fine framework. It's almost like a different methodology of approaching it but for me the like lightweight composable nature of react is is just awesome for this sort of thing yeah. it is yeah uh, i mean angular 2 which is probably the one you're making components for is a lot better than angular 1 uh, angular 1 was a real mess uh, <laughs> so yeah angular is, is definitely a good framework you cannot go wrong by picking it but of course, you know, we're on the React uh, <laughs> podcast and podcast and React is definitely at least 20% better in my opinion. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Since you've been using React for a while, do you have any other like React tips and tricks? Are there like, I'd be curious things like, what are you using for like CSS? What's your preferred tool chain there? Are there any other like React extensions or little t things here or there that you would recommend to others? Yeah, for sure. So I'm very, very happy with uh, picking Next.js for the, you know, the, the framework that does all the bundling and server-side rendering and stuff for you. And I'm very happy with it because I didn't know at the time we were going to build documentation sites also. And, you know, server-side rendering is very important for documentation sites because it has to be fast so Google can index you and most uh, customers will ask you for server-side render stuff. So I definitely recommend Next.js. It's, it's a very good framework. It allows you to very simply render server-side 
in regards to CSS, what you asked, we use Emotion. Emotion is a way of, you know, writing CSS with JavaScript. And actually, it's very, very nice experience if you use the object notation. For example, many people use like styled and put the string in there. I would recommend not do that. Just use styled and put the object containing the, the styles in there because you're going to get full, you know, type checking and more safety if you're using something like TypeScript or Flow from Facebook. Man, I never even thought about that. But yeah, so you're saying, <laughs> this is hard with an audio podcast, but the object notation is like the style dot like div and then like the template literal strings, right? That lets you like write out like name value pairs for your styles. Yes, exactly. And TypeScript, uh, well, TypeScript actually does like check that. Not the, the template string, but if you use the object not notation, it does. So, oh, <laughs> I see. So you're saying don't use the style dot, use the object notation as well, so that you get that sort of safety. So the style dot also. So the style dot, and I'm not sure if how it is in other you know CSS and JavaScript frameworks, but in Emotion, you can use style dot div. And and there it receives either a template or the object. And oh. what I'm saying is go for the object because it it gets type checked and <laughs> and also doesn't it doesn't have to be parsed. <laughs> I see it. Yeah, I had to look this up. This is news to me because I I don't do a whole lot of CSS and JavaScript, so I'm only roughly familiar with it. But yeah, I see it now in the docs. You just basically instead of a template literal, you can just pass the thing an object and yeah. I can. This makes more sense because I was wondering, like, how is TypeScript doing that? But if it's just a straight yeah. literal, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's very cool in my opinion because this way everything is type checked. Your React component is type checked. Your inputs to that component are type checked. Your state is type checked. Your props are type checked. And even your CSS is type checked. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, too, like, I think more and more when you use these sort of things, you end up with a little bit of logic in your stuff as well. So having that available, like maybe like some theming calls or you're you're calling off to something, like you're not just like hard coding CSS strings. And so I can For imagine sure. having a little bit of compiler helping you with your CSS is actually kind of nice. Yeah, it's, it's very nice. And as you said, theming is a, is a very important component. This is why I picked, you know, Emotion. Uh, which is basically not the most popular CSS and CSS and JS. There's style components also, but I was like, well, I used the uh, Glamorous the first time I built it, and I when when they shut down Glamorous, the open source project, I was like, well, okay, Emotion is the closest thing to that. So I'm very happy with the choice. I was lucky actually. It's it's a good project, and they seem to be pushing it forward. Yeah, it seems to be getting more popular. It's it's funny um, doing these podcasts. I. I'm always interested in like what tech people keep mentioning, right? Because it's a good like check on what are the trendy things that are coming up. And emotion comes up a lot. And actually, Next.js is, I think this is now like, I need to keep keeping track, but this is like a three or four podcasts in a row that Next.js has come up. Um, so I feel like it's becoming way more popular just because the just things like server rendering is becoming more of a commonplace thing that people need to do. And so once you need that, usually you want some sort of framework to help you. And actually, I'm curious, what parts, like, because I'm still fairly new to server rendering, like, what parts are you actually utilizing? Like, what part of the, like, documentation are you rendering from the server? 
Yeah, so the documentation you build internally can be easily shared externally on your own domain. And there, we want to render it server-side because it's it's a matter of, uh, of speed and SEO. So if uh, Google sees your, your page is very fast, then it's going to give it a bit more push in the rankings. And then it's also a better experience for the user not having to wait the loading screen and and then the to be able to interact with it when you're doing server side rendering you're actually shipping the whole html and then it gets hydrated with with the functions and the dynamicity of of the real thing of the real client side app and nextjs does this in a very transparent way you don't even have to think about this the only thing you have to think about is how you're fetching the data. If you want it fetched, if, if you want to render server-side, you fetch it in the get initial props. That's a special method that they provide in, a, in the network, in the framework. But they also have like a couple more methods that are mind-blowing. It's like you can render those pages when building the project. <laughs> it's like in, a, in your CI CD, you can <laughs> you know, fetch the stuff from like your CMS or whatever you want it from and then generated that right there. So you don't even have to have a server rendering that stuff. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I, I wasn't even thinking about the fact, but what you're building is kind of interesting because you're building a product, but you're building a product that generates like a live site for people too. So yeah. we're somewhat talking about the architecture of your product, but then we're talking about the architecture of the thing that you're actually building for others, right? The documentation sites that yeah. other people are actually going to you know, deploy to their own whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's newer because we wanted to do it for internal usage initially. But then more and more people asked us, well, like, well, I want to share this thing with, uh, with other people and not just one document. I want to share the whole document tree with other people. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, <laughs> maybe this is not our thing, but more and more people asked for it. So... You know, you have to listen to the market. <laughs> For sure. Um, and actually, that, that might be a decent segue because I'm also curious about like the, just the business side of this because did you, had you had any background just like selling things to people or were you just totally just a software developer doing like contract things before this? I had a bit of background selling myself actually because getting those contracts is is not easy actually. Or you can get contracts easily, but they're not going to be the top level contracts where you're getting, for example, in Europe, you can get paid like 10, 15,000 a month if you're selling yourself correctly and to the right companies as a, as a consultant. But you're not going to get those by being a weak salesman <laughs> and, and not selling yourself correctly. You, think- you can get a 5K a month anytime, probably, uh, but not a $15. <laughs> Because I, I, I think for a lot of people, like the aspect of actually doing like the marketing and sales behind something like this is perhaps even more intimidating than building out like a 70, 80,000 lines of code just because I, I mean, software developers, it's sort of stereotypical, but there's also some truth in it tend to be a little more introverted, like working on code, but to actually build a product, you if you build it and no one uses it, then it it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 basically the stereotypical developer because I haven't done much marketing and sales. I'm just starting, you know, 
doing it more and more. But in the beginning, just did the basic launch on product hunt, write a couple of blog posts, one a month, uh, you know, tell people what you're building, but not many of them. I was like, basically 98% of my time was, and it still basically is at least 90% invested in product development and not in marketing and sales. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I've definitely gone the way you said it. <laughs> Developers don't like the market stuff. I don't like the market stuff. It's, it's incredibly hard and, <laughs> and definitely is the most intimidating thing for me also. Yeah, interesting. So have you brought on like other people to help with that stuff? Or are you just sort of depending on like word of mouth a little bit to help spread the word? Both actually. I've, uh, I've hired a, a guy to help me with the marketing. He's also a junior on marketing because I can't afford, you know, like a senior guy. But I also felt I couldn't get along with the senior marketing guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I brought someone in because I felt the product didn't get the, you know, the attention it deserved. So I felt I was, you know, not making much progress on the marketing front. And I said, well, we definitely need to do something about it. And since I don't enjoy doing it, let's hire somebody. (laughs) Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's one of those things that developers kind of underrate a little bit. I know that it's like the, again, the, the stereotypical notion of developers is like, ah, marketing and sales are are totally irrelevant. But I think like, at least in my experience, once you start charging money for things, like it's it's one thing if you're marketing like an open source thing that's like free to use and developers can like find it and spread the word. But as soon as you start charging money, like just finding people that are in your target market and that are interested in it, or they're willing to pay and like, maybe even like write about what they're doing sort of thing. It's there's, there's an art and a science behind it. And I definitely have a lot more respect now than I did five or 10 years ago for people that are really good at that sort of thing. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, it's hard stuff, man. It's, it takes a lot of uh, time and attention and you know, energy put into it and I'm not able to do it, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah. uh, But coming back to the original question, I also think as a developer that word of mouth is one important aspect of it. And if your product is not good enough to be talked about other people, you should definitely invest most of your time making it that way. Do the minimum stuff so that you, you have, I mean, maybe 100 traffic, 100 hits of traffic per day in the beginning. And so that you have customer feedback, you don't, you don't, you're not like building in vain, do the minimum stuff, and then work your ass off to to make the product great. And I think that's, that's the best approach, because the, the best marketing for something in these days, where it's very competitive, it's your product. I really like how you phrase that. And I think it's a testament to that when you first brought up what the product was to me, I just immediately went like, oh, okay, like, yeah, like internal company documentation is really bad just in in general, right? So yeah. I immediately had a thing of like, okay, I, I see what you're doing and why like at those sorts of companies, it's definitely compelling and worth looking into. And I'd say that if you're if you're building something and not generating those sort of reactions that like, Hey, I've got some unique niche to stand out or, or something that's, that's kind of interesting, then 
probably, well, I'll just say it like you said it, just work your ass off to to make it that way or else you're probably not going to succeed anyways. Yeah, I mean, also set your expectations correctly. I, also, I, I definitely didn't set my expectations correctly. <laughs> I was like, well, in the first year, I'm going to get the 10,000 MRR and I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to work on my, on my own and not have to bother anything, but I couldn't do it. And I had to, you know, sell a bit of the company to uh, the investors and to be able to, to get through the next phase. But yeah, set your expectations correctly. In one year, you're probably only going to have a mediocre product and very low marketing. And that's how it is. You have to prepare for more years. It's like the entrepreneurs that go into like SaaS that are not technical are prepared to go 15 years on this stuff. <laughs> so if you only set your mind that, well, I'm going to make it in three years, you're going to get beat up. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think actually... The, those of us that do have some software experience, especially as you said, like working, having some experience with all these technologies, have a kind of a fun edge on people because like you are someone that can build something like this. And there's there's not necessarily like of all the great population of people that want to build businesses and companies. And there's quite a few people there. Are, the people listening to this podcast are sort of in a unique niche that can actually have the capability to actually go yeah. do that. They don't have to work with other people. And I think you're a testament to, you can even do that, I mean, basically by yourself, right? At least to, yeah. to get things going for the first little bit. So I, I think that's kind of cool and kind of inspiring as well. Yeah, I think, so I think over the next years, we're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, software as a service built by developer founders. More and more people are getting educated and into the you know the minimum of marketing, the minimum of sales, so that they can build something for themselves and, and build a successful business. You know the indie hacker type of business, and you know people say it's ultra competitive these days, but I don't think it is. If you, if you relate it to other industries, for example, let's look at jeans. There's maybe a thousand, maybe five thousand companies that make jeans. But if you look at any any software today, there's like 10 or 20 that are doing it good and another 20 that are doing it very badly and one or two that are doing it very good. <laughs> yeah, you like you almost have to have some niche to stand out because to take your jeans example, suppose you you really do come up with some jeans innovation. You're you're a great designer. You're gonna face such a hurdle trying to get stores to include jeans to try to get people to know about jeans and i feel like in the software world we have there's just so much more opportunity out there like people have been trying to make jeans forever but there are so many different problems we can solve with software that just don't have good solutions today so we can carve out different niches for these sort of businesses that are a lot harder to make work in the the, the like non-software the like traditional <laughs> entrepreneur world no, actually, I was made. I was trying to make the counter argument argument of what you said. Oh, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so I I always heard people like around me say, "Well, that's not unique. What you're being building, like it's shameful to build something something that already exists." I think this is in the back of every developer. They're yeah. like, "Well, I'm only going to build something if it's unique in this world," and I think that's that's definitely wrong to think that way. And this goes back to what I said. It's the competition is not that high in, in this present time. It'll be in like 25 or maybe 10, maybe 
20 years when there's like 1,000 companies that are doing this <laughs> in your specific market. But until then, I, I don't even think you should be worried about competition. Just worry about your own product, your own marketing, your own stuff, even if you're not doing something unique. If you try to find unique ideas, it's going to be a lot harder for you as a developer because you're not good at you know educating markets. <laughs> and yeah, and if you're passionate about what you're building, you can get a lot done. I think like even with your example, just to to clarify where I'm coming from, it's like overall what you're building is like you said there are other documentation building things out there, right? Like that yeah. part isn't unique. But you did like earlier you talked about like some of the more unique things that you're approaching, right? And I'm guessing you're cheaper than like something Atlassian <laughs> sells as well. So you like what you're doing, like the overall problem you're solving is something that there's all sorts of things out there for. But I, I still would argue that you have sort of a unique approach in this that makes you stand out from the crowd also. So I, I guess that you can look at this multiple different ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I wanted to continue saying is that no product is going to be the same because the, the customers guide you in different ways. You're going to be different whatever you do. It's You're not going to be able to stay the same as somebody else. But what I'm saying is developers usually think, well, if there's competition in that market, I'm not going to go there because, you know, those guys are VC funded and they have a lot of money and I'm just a small guy and I'm not going to be able to compete. I'm not so sure that's that common thing that people think is is true anymore because you, you also have some advantages as, as a developer. You can build it yourself. It's cheaper for you to build it. You know what you're doing. You have your weekends, you have your late nights, you have your involvement because this, you know, when you're working for a company, you're not putting as much effort as, as you would if it's your own business. <laughs> so maybe you as a single, single developer working for your own product is maybe four developers working for another company's product. <laughs> I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying here is that you have some advantages. Don't think you, you don't. That's that's a really inspiring way of putting this. And I don't think I even want to add anything to it because I think a lot of people listening to this, I mean, it's it's hard to build a business, right? It's a you're taking a risk, throwing yourself out there. And so I love the way you put it that you have some advantages. So if you have that inspiration, if you have that idea, go for it, right? Why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's all up to you. Uh, what do you want to do? It's it's hard. It's very hard sometimes. It's, it's very easy sometimes. It's all ups and downs, I think. And for me, obviously, the, the hardest thing was, you know, going through the emotional phases of learning this stuff. <laughs> well, and this this has been a lot of fun. Is, is there anything we've missed that you want to talk about either from like a business, what you're doing at RHB or from a tech perspective? Anything that we haven't touched on yet that we, you want to make sure we get to? Well, actually, I think we we freestyled a bit. <laughs> the main talk was about handling eighty thousand lines of TypeScript, and what I wanted to say there was was like was like be cool. It's you're gonna be scared when you run npm run clock, <laughs> and you're gonna see eighty thousand lines of code, and you're only one guy or two guys building it together. <laughs> but don't be scared. I mean, you hear all these technologies, all those big shot companies funded with $20 million. You can run parallel to them. It's it's not a head-on competition. You're basically in different lanes. 
<laughs> yeah, I like and, how you phrase it as you have, you have different advantages that those big companies and their overhead, you can stand out against. Yeah, I, I, I guess the main point I wanted to say, don't, don't be scared. 80,000 lines of code is not that hard. Uh, building a business is not that hard. It's going to be hard at, at some point, but it's not because it's hard in reality. It's because it's hard for your mental, you know, uh, <laughs> emotional state. That's what I wanted to, you know, relate to other developers that might want to pursue this thing. Well, cool. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So with that in mind, why don't we go into the picks? I can get us started. I've got a very random one. So I'm a pretty big board game fan. And one we've been playing lately is called Throw Throw Burrito, which is if you're familiar with the the people that made the Exploding Kittens, the there's a game that they made, and this is from the same people. And it's very random. It's it's a game that's got like the world's simplest rules, but part of the rules are when certain things happen in the game, you have to essentially have a duel with these like foam burritos you can throw at each other. And it's it's random, but it's it's a fun party game because you can teach somebody how to play it and 30 seconds and it's just a lot of fun um actually we got my sister got my kids the they have an outdoor edition with like giant inflatable burritos that you can throw (laughs) at each other too so we haven't tried that one yet because it's been a little cold here but i want to try that as well so that is my pack i love the colors i love the colors it's like that oh it's it's very light uh, yellow (laughs) it's It's fun it's so it's fun and it's so random (laughs) Uh, Dragos, do you have any picks? Well, uh, yeah, since you mentioned that I can pick anything, I, w- I would say kids. <laughs> <laughs> kids are kids are the best. I mean, yeah, they, they're like, uh, don't think kids are not an advantage for you. <laughs> they are. It's it's hard with kids. You know, it's you can play with them. You, you can make them happy. You can make them smile. And they're definitely going to make you smile as well. <laughs> uh, how many kids do you have? One. <laughs> one kid, how old? It's uh, one year and four months. It's she's been uh, she's been born the same month I launched my product on product. Hunt. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's a fun age one. She's I'm sure she's getting into a lot of trouble because I, I remember that age is like just being able to walk, like walk well and being difficult yeah. to contain and such. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's 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 pretty fun, and you know, it's inspiring to see somebody go from that little lump of flesh to you know, like one year old or, or one year and a half, where they're like running around and smiling and bumping their heads sometimes into stuff. Yeah, my mine are mine just turned ten. I have 
10-year-old twins. So I think wow. my advice, yeah, I get nostalgic now when I see one-year-olds because it's, so I, my recommendation would be enjoy enjoy the time, take lots of pictures, take lots of videos also, because years later now, like the, the most random videos you take, right, that you think is nothing special, like fast forward nine, 10 years, and all of a sudden that's lots of fun to watch for whatever reason. So little video clips is something I'd really recommend. Yeah, yeah. I also recommend that even if you look uh, like when I look four months back when she was like nine, nine or, you know, 10 months old, <laughs> she was completely different. Yeah. <laughs> she was doing completely different stuff. So I can only imagine that becoming even more impressive with years passing. <laughs> it's it's fun too with the the photo services being so good nowadays because I feel like from my childhood I have just like <laughs> these like handful of printed pictures and that's that's what yeah. I'm what I'm dealing with. And now it's like we're documenting every every major event in kids' lives and they they'll be able to look back at that, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good thing to be able to show your your kid, well this is this was you. <laughs> yeah. And in video and color, like like you, I'm I'm like I only have uh, black and white <laughs> oh. uh, photos printed. Oh, I, I was a child. I at least had uh, I have, I have color ones, but they're they're not the world's greatest quality. <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dragos, this has been a lot of fun. I I think to wrap up, are where's the best place if people have any questions or want to reach out at all? Where's the best place to to follow you to keep track of you to ask any questions they might have? Uh, I would say Twitter. I'm getting into Twitter. You can follow me at happydragosh.com. Uh, <laughs> at happydragosh. <laughs> That's an awesome. I love the handle too. It's yeah, I changed it. It was it was the only dragosh, and I was like, "Well, I'm not the only dragosh. I'm I'm just a happy dragosh." <laughs> <laughs> and also toss in. So we'll make sure to get all the links from today in the show notes if you want to check that out. If you want to follow Dragos, we'll put a link into Archv too because I'm guessing there's some people here that. I think no one's totally happy with their documentation situation. So drop a link into that as well. Well, this has been a lot of fun. So thanks one more time for for joining us today. Hopefully people found this chat interesting. I know I had a lot of fun. Thanks, DJ. I had a lot of fun also. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.